This is The Guardian. This summer's biggest news story by far is this. Firefighters on the Greek island of Rhodes say they expect wildfires to get worse today as temperatures rise. Next to China, where flash floods have killed at least 15 people in the southwest. The extremes of the climate emergency are now obvious all over the world. Meanwhile, in the UK... Yes, we're going to make progress towards net zero, but we're going to do that in a proportionate and pragmatic way that doesn't unnecessarily give people more hassle and more costs in their life. How did our politics get so small and reckless? And is there a way out? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. This week, we're doing something a bit different. We're going to hear from the Conservative peer, Zach Goldsmith, Lord Goldsmith, who last month resigned as International Environment Minister and said that Rishi Sunak was uninterested, that was his word, in the environment. This week, he used an interview in The Guardian to also attack the stances on the climate crisis taken by the Prime Minister's colleagues, Michael Gove and Grant Shapps. Last Thursday, the Tories narrowly won the Uxbridge and South Ryslip by-election, chiefly, it seems, because they mobilised opposition to the expansion of London's ultra-low emission zone, or ULES, and its levies on old vehicles. That triggered a huge amount of noise on the right of politics about the supposed need to either pause or stop policies linked to the cross-party commitment for the UK to reach net-zero carbon emissions by 2050. What this all seems to highlight is the smallness of British politics right now. The fact that while we watch the world literally burn, climate change policy seems to be being altered according to the wishes of about 14,000 Tory voters in the outer London suburbs. Right, we are now, I'm pleased to say, joined by Zach Goldsmith to discuss uh, the reason that he resigned from the government and its place in the bigger context of the government's approach to the climate crisis. We're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Um, and I guess you must feel very keenly this tension between all these horrendous images of the climate crisis that we see whenever we switch on our TV set or look at our phone and what we're hearing from senior politicians and political leaders in the wake of the by-election in Uxbridge. That's a hell of a tension, isn't it? I'm, look, I'm slightly confused by it on one level because the, 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 the issue, the, the environmental policy or issue that is supposed to have been a major part of the um, uh, the by-election in Uxbridge was ULEZ, which is not really a net zero policy. It's more about air quality. And it's just worth making that point because it's not really yeah, what yeah. people think of in relation to net zero. But but I also think it's the case that, you know, people who are interested in politics, and most people who are, are not objective, they have a team that they support, most people, not everyone. And they'll always interpret an outcome in a way that confirms their own prejudices. And so you find the people who are anti-net zero are saying this is an absolute landmark moment against a net zero. And you've got other people saying the opposite. And if you step back and look at any moment in the last, say, three, four years, probably longer, where public opinion has been tested uh, in you know, professional surveys, opinion polls and so on, no matter how you cut the question, an overwhelming majority of people from whichever party support more action on the environment, not yeah, just yeah. The climate, but the environment generally. Nonetheless, it it does seem as if Rishi Sunak, made clear actually, that Rishi Sunak now is going to move away from some of his government's green policies. But this week, by way of rhetoric, he said he wanted a proportionate 
and pragmatic approach to the climate crisis. And on Tuesday, uh, there were reports of an easing of energy efficiency requirements in rented homes so as not to, quote, overburden landlords, unquote, in the midst of what we are told is a general review of the government's approach to the climate crisis. Let's hear a bit of what Rishi Sunak has been saying. Well, actually, I'm standing up for the British people because I'm also cognizant that we're living through a time at the moment where inflation is high. That's having an impact on household and families' bills. And I don't want to do anything to add to that. I want to make it easier. So, yes, we're going to make progress towards net zero, but we're going to do that in a proportionate and pragmatic way that doesn't unnecessarily give people more hassle and more costs in their life. That's what I'm not interested and prepared to do. You have said very pointedly that Rishi Sunak is uninterested. That was your word in the environment and climate change. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that, I mean, just in relation to the, the clip you played, I mean, it's, it is perfectly legitimate to look for the best possible policies for, for, for tackling climate change and reversing biodiversity loss. There is not one policy that has to be adopted and everything else isn't going to work. Okay. The, the real question is, are we committed? Is this government, this Conservative Party, committed to getting to the same outcome? And the answer yeah. is that there is a bunch of people in the party who are very noisy, who've got a big megaphone, who absolutely are not committed and are pushing as hard as they can and grabbing any old bit of dodgy evidence to, to boost their case, to try and uh, stifle progress. But, but it is worth just acknowledging that we have signed into law commitments around biodiversity loss, around net zero. So even if we were to drop a particular policy, we can only do so now if at the same time we replace it with a more effective policy or at least as effective a policy. So yeah, I, I, I suspect that what's happening now is that there are people in government uh, uh, playing to a gallery. My, my view is that they've misunderstood the gallery or they think the gallery is a lot bigger and more important than it actually is. I think okay. most people but actually do want to see progress on these issues. OK, but nonetheless, these are significant signals that we're getting yes. from the government. And you have and you have used that word uninterested. Tell me what you mean by uninterested. I mean, you know, that's quite a word to use. And, and, I, and I, you know, I, sta I stand by that. I mean, I, I've been a minister under three prime ministers. I think most ministers in the Conservative Party nowadays can say that. Um, <laughs> and there was a, just a, a gigantic gap between what I was able to do under the first of those prime ministers, Boris Johnson, who for all the controversy and all the mixed opinions that he generates, he was pretty good on this stuff, on climate, in particular on the natural environment, as compared with what I was able to get done under the last few, under Rishi Sunak in the last few months. Pause there. But uninterested means that he's indifferent, yes. that he doesn't so, care. So this is the thing. I don't sense a particular hostility. I just don't think it registers on, on his radar. I don't think he's moved by the the facts, the evidence. Um, I, I, you, are, you, know, I could, you could ask me why I think that is, and I, I struggle to answer that because I, I cannot relate to people who are not moved by the idea that we face the prospect of losing huge amounts of biodiversity never to return. But, but it seems to me that, that the Prime Minister, while not being hostile, just has no innate interest in these issues. But the challenge I faced was grappling with whether or not I wanted to stay a minister for, for some time, to be honest. Um, discussion I had many times with my officials in the department was, you know, I, I felt that I was battling to not go backwards. And that's pretty demoralizing if you're a minister who cares about the brief that they, that they have. Um, and having made okay. a lot of progress, I think, in the last three or four years, a lot of that stuff suddenly looked like it was seriously at risk. In particular, 
those commitments that, that came out of a bigger umbrella financial commitment we made to double climate finance to 11.6 billion. And, and the reality is no matter what the government says today, we are not going to honour that pledge. We're just not going to, unless the Prime Minister personally intervenes or the Chancellor personally intervenes. We mathematically cannot meet that pledge. It is a broken promise. And from that promise flows so many of the things that we've been able to do over the last few years that it felt to me that that is a pretty big uh, a red line. Do you accept that there were large holes in Boris Johnson's climate record? He didn't do anything about the onshore wind ban instigated yeah. by David Cameron, and he also encouraged new oil and gas drilling in the North Sea. They're pretty big inconsistencies. Oh, uh, when of it course, comes to and, and, many, and there have been other inconsistencies as well. But I look at the overall time we had and what we achieved in that time. And I don't think it's comparable to any other time in, in our history. I think we got more done by far on his watch than we did under all of his predecessors combined. Um, and I think that was, we saw that partly at COP26 in Glasgow, where the UK kind of burst onto the scene. I don't think anyone expected it to be a successful COP, but it was 30% of the global economy signed up to net zero before we took on the presidency, 90 something percent after we uh, concluded Glasgow COP26. The UK had a really important position, an incredible responsibility that came with that. And my concern today is that we are rapidly losing the ability to maintain and protect that leadership. And even if you don't care okay. about the climate, even if you don't care about nature, it's not good for the UK to be stepping off the world stage. When we make a promise to small island states in the Commonwealth, and more than half the countries of the Commonwealth are climate vulnerable small island states, and we say we're going to help you out with climate change, an issue which you think is existential, and we then break that promise, we can't then go back to those countries and say, hey, will you back us against uh, Russia and Ukraine? You just can't do that. Just to uh, present you with this, it will be said, and it is being said, that although this intervention from you is is uh, about climate change, this is another example of noises off from friends and backers of Boris Johnson in response to a prime minister who effectively ousted him. It's just, I mean, I can just tell you very simply, that's not true. My loyalty, uh, I've spent my entire life campaigning on these issues as far back as I remember. I ran The Ecologist magazine for 10 years. Uh, there's never been a moment in my life where I haven't campaigned on these issues. My loyalty to these issues, my concern about these issues is just so much greater than friendships with any politicians uh, in, in, in any context from any party. I, if Boris Johnson had stepped backwards on these big issues that we're talking about today, if I felt that I couldn't win the arguments with him, if I felt that our net progress wasn't a lot better than our net backward or regressive step, I would have caused Boris Johnson as big a headache as I possibly could have caused him. Um, let's talk about the internal politics or and the external in the sense that we can all see it. The politics within the Conservative Party, you talked a moment ago about very noisy elements. It feels to me as if Conservative politics after the Brexit referendum of 2016, in large part has become more hardcore and more shrill than it used to be. And for some reason, climate denial or something near to that, a position that amounts to the same thing, really, is something that large swathes of the right of the Conservative Party in particular have kind of soaked up. Let's hear a bit of um, the Venerable Lord Frost, David Frost, talking in the House of Lords on Monday. At the moment, seven times as many people die from cold as from heat as in Britain. Rising temperatures are likely to be beneficial. The Government Actuary Department, no less, wrote in April this year, and I quote, it is the low winter temperatures that have a greater effect on the number of deaths. Since the start of the millennium, a decline in deaths from cold temperature periods has more than offset 
any increase in the number of deaths associated with warmer temperature over the same period. There's a lot of that around. I mean, he's not a maverick voice. That when, when one reads the right-wing press, if you read the Telegraph or the Mail, it instantly you see and hear those voices. When you switch on GB News, there they are. When you go to a Conservative Party conference, you don't have to try very hard to either go to the conference fringe or on the conference floor and hear much the same sentiments. Something has happened, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and a couple of points in, directly in response to, to the David Frost reference is that you know, he is actually a maverick, I think. And, and on these issues, he puts himself forward as an expert on climate and environment, but he clearly isn't. I mean, anyone who listened to what he had to say on Monday, that, you know, if the UK was the, the only thing on this planet, then you could possibly make an argument that we could weather the changes and there might be some benefits, there'll be downsides, there'll be upsides. We don't know exactly what it means, but we're not. We're part of a world. And we know that there are going to be, if even the most conservative estimates in relation to climate change are true, we're going to have millions upon millions millions upon millions of people who are displaced. And that is not something that we can pretend doesn't exist. It's going to have a huge impact on it and really a monstrous impact on the UK, on global food security, on distribution systems, on net. Sure, sure, sure. So it is not an intelligent thing he said at all. It just simply... No, no, but 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 he, he nonetheless is one part, yes. as you've said, of a large right. number of voices, and he's on a continuum, right? So perhaps he's at one end. Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, is somewhere near him. But then we hear, and I know you've talked to our Guardian colleague, Helena Horton, about this. You then hear Michael Gove and Grant Shapps, senior ministers, who know the risks of climate breakdown or profess to know the risks of climate breakdown, but are criticising and thereby undermining net zero measures. So there is a, there's a sort yes. of big picture here as far yes. as the Conservative and, Party. And, so, and that goes back to the first point. I mean, it, where you have ministers and people in the cabinet who are uh, trying to convey an impression that we're going to be stepping back from some of these issues, even while we know those same people care very much about or at least understand those issues, that is harder to accept. And I think it's also harder to forgive uh, uh, because... They know. They, they've taken the effort to know. They've made the effort to know. So, so what's no, going on? Well, I, I think there are two misjudgments that have been made by them, but also I think by some commentators. The first is the, the scale of this within the Conservative Party. The reality is, and again, this is something you can back up with numbers. It's not just my opinion. There are more members in the Conservative Party among the MPs of the Conservative Environment Network, for example, and any other organization that I'm aware of in the party. It's the biggest caucus of all. I think they're far too polite. I think they're far too gentle, but and I'd love them to flex their muscles much more. I think they should frighten the hell out of the prime minister and say, if you don't behave on these issues, we're going to collectively give you a massive headache, which is what the sort of the net, the, the net zero skeptics are very happy to do. I'd love to see more of that from the, the environment minded conservative MPs. And the second misconception, and this is something that the government is, is absolutely guilty of, is a, a misjudgment of the public mood. Now, I, I have been involved in this debate within the Conservative Party now for well over to 10, 15, 20 years. And I have conducted, I have yeah. paid for, I've commissioned lots and lots of polls and surveys uh, just to try and win my argument. And it just simply okay. is the case that it doesn't matter who you talk to, the blue rinse core conservative voter in, a, in the shires, all the way to your younger, you know, market oriented conservatives in the cities, everyone cares about this issue. More to the point, and I want to know whether this worries you, there are very senior figures um, in the Conservative Party who, we are told, have a very serious chance of becoming the next leader, Kemi Badenoch and Suella Braverman, both of whom have expressed very sceptical opinions about net zero. The aim itself 
let alone the policies that may or may not get you there. That must worry you, because that's about a, a political direction the Conservative Party may imminently take. I mean, it, it does, uh, it, of course, worry me. The prospect of, it, of someone taking over the Conservative Party, you know, after the next election, who is uh, is hostile to um, or even sceptical of the, these issues. I don't mind policy scepticism. I think that is always a good thing. But, but a scepticism about the direction, about the outcome is very, very dangerous. Now, I, I don't think Suella Braverman is someone who's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. I'd be absolutely amazed if that were the case. Someone like Kemi could be. Kemi's more nuanced on these issues. She spoke quite movingly about the, the, the links between the, a, a healthy environment and poverty and so on from Nigeria. It's a little bit Panglossian. It's a little oh, bit Panglossian, uh, as you know, no, because know. On, on more than a few occasions, she has expressed doubts yes, about yes. the aim and, of and when she, and right? I, and I said, I'm not going to pretend otherwise, but I have, on the back of some of those comments, I've had many discussions with Kemi. Um, and I think she did shift her position quite considerably when she was in the frame as a potential leader in the last contest. Look, I, I you know, I, it's her position evolved. There's no doubt about that. But I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think there is a growing movement. It's it's well set on the far right, but it's also now developing on the far left. You've got this sort of this sense that the World Economic Forum has got some gigantic conspiracy and climate politics yeah, is yeah. the perfect way of, of controlling the world. And they sort of met in this extremist area where they're now speaking very much the same language. And one, you know, we can never be complacent. It is always possible that things that appear very extreme to us today can look mainstream tomorrow. If this turn in conservative opinion gains momentum and the Tories' antipathy to climate action increases, surely to God you will then start to question your loyalty to the Conservative oh, but Party. I'm not, but, I, but I'm not particularly loyal to the Conservative Party. I, I would never put that high up on my list of things that I'm loyal to. I'm, I'm, I'm loyal to the issues. Being a, uh, an MP, being a minister, being an House of Lords, these are all a means to an end. Um, and my view is that, uh, you know, in, in interpreted the way I interpret it, the conservative approach is one that if it's in good faith, that it, it works well. Uh, I think use of the market to try and turn things around is a, is the right thing to do. But if the Conservative Party goes in a in 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 the, in the wrong direction, and it certainly looks like that is what's beginning to happen, for me that just tells me I have to work much harder to try and ensure that the Conservative Party doesn't lose sight of these issues. No, no, but but there may come a point, and may there not, at which it starts to feel futile. Well, there will never come a point where we don't need the mainstream parties here and around the world to have a comprehensive answer to the crisis we face. That that will never happen. And it, it's no good simply say, well, everyone's got to vote green, because everyone isn't going to vote green. And and the Greens are, you know, the Greens are a big part of what they do, the environment, but they have all kinds of other baggage as well that people who care about the environment may not like here's a question you were a supporter of brexit um i wonder now how you feel about that given that there is a widespread understanding that brexit is one of the things that may well have weakened our approach to the climate crisis the thing is brexit is is um is it's a tool you know it's a, it's a brexit is something that you know in theory but also in practice gives the country ability to do things that it was otherwise unable to do and in the areas that I've always worked, animal welfare, nature, climate, it gives us particularly uh, uh, useful tools. There are things that we can do now that we were not able to do before. And there is a legitimate question from people who are hostile to Brexit, where is the result of that? And the truth is there aren't nearly enough results. That doesn't mean that, that what I said at the beginning was wrong. We do have the ability to do things. The, the, the issue is that we haven't chosen to do all those things. But on the, fund on the fundamental question, 
of reducing CO2 emissions across the globe. Brexit was a huge blow against the idea of international cooperation and, for that matter, the practicalities of international cooperation, right? So in that sense, in the most basic way, it weakened collective international efforts to tackle climate change. Do you buy that? No, I I don't agree with that. I think, you know, the biggest test of the UK after Brexit was COP. That was the biggest event we've ever hosted in the UK. And I think we showed that we could pull the world together. We had incredible convening power and we delivered much, much, much more than anyone expected to. And we did that working with countries that we're very friendly with. We did it working with countries that we're much less friendly with. And we had to find ways of succeeding. You know, Brazil under Bolsonaro, we managed to get them to sign up to the forest commitment, despite his own hostility to that cause. We did that by talking to the companies that buy his agricultural commodities. It wasn't our diplomacy that won the argument. It was business. Um, and it worked. And, and there are many examples of us having to do that kind of stuff, but we did do it and it worked. So I don't think there's a, I don't think Brexit was an argument against internationalism. I think on, on the p- point that we were just talking about earlier, I, I'm not going to pretend we, we have used all the tools that we have for the things that I would like them to have been used for. We haven't. But I also believe that Public opinion is only going to go in one direction. People increasingly care about climate. They increasingly care about nature. They increasingly care about animal welfare. That translates to political power. And even if you get a minor deviation or a temporary deviation from a government, I don't believe that long or even medium term, we're not going to have much more pressure. You say that all the signs are that, by and large, public opinion is increasingly aware of the drastic nature of the climate crisis. And people are coming around in ever greater numbers to the idea that we have to do something very or a set of very serious things to deal with it. Do you do you think that, or do you think part of what is at work in the Conservative Party here is the fact that, and it's a political failure, really, people haven't been told or haven't been alerted to exactly how much they're going to have to change the way that they live and so on, and therefore politicians on both the centre-right and the centre-left, therefore, just recoil from all this. It's too difficult. But I, I, I don't buy that argument because I think things are changing all the time anyway. Our, us communicating on the devices that we're communicating on didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. Everything changes all the time. The, the market has already decided that this transition is happening, irrespective of the politicians. Solar came down 90% in price since the banking crisis. Under President Trump, coal use fell faster than it had under Obama, even though he spent billions of public money trying to keep it going. The market is moving in that direction direction. Whether whether politicians like it or not, the only question is how quickly it's going to move. And for the most part, all the things that we need to do to tackle climate change are things that, one, are going to happen anyway. Two, we want them to happen anyway. There's there's that wonderful meme that did the rounds uh, during COP26. What happens if we do all these wonderful things and we're wrong about climate change? Well, we have a better world. Great. The challenge for politicians is just to make it happen. So you and I would have our disagreements about the role of the market in all this. But nonetheless, I wish there were more voices like yours in the Conservative Party. And it seems to me that people like you are hugely now on the back foot. And that terrifies me. But it doesn't seem to terrify you. Well, no, I mean, it does. If, if, I, if I didn't think this was a crisis and, and we all need to be fighting as hard as we possibly can, then I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing that. Um, and I'm definitely not complacent. But I'm, I'm, I'm less gloomy, I think, about the politics than you are, because ultimately I think people care a lot about these issues. And politicians are, on the whole, pretty opportunistic and will just go with the flow. And there are plenty of politicians who you know, just don't care. But they do care about winning elections. They do care about power. And I think the electorate will not look favourably and should not look favourably on any political party that doesn't take these issues seriously. 
Let's hope. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. We will now pause for a moment. When we come back, we'll look at where both parties stand on their green policies with The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Kreera. The World Cup is here, and can you hear that? That's the sound of you missing out. Drop everything you're doing, unless you're driving, and tune into the Guardian Women's Football Weekly podcast, because with even more teams and more living legends than ever before, this is one hell of a World Cup. To keep up with all the action, we'll be doing three episodes a week for the entirety of the tournament, you lucky things. We'll have the usual guests and lots of new voices. Join us, Suzanne Rack And Faker Others, and listen to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Dein Podcast macht kurz Pause. Hate Speech dagegen hört nicht so einfach auf. Wer hat dir überhaupt erlaubt zu reden, Schlampe? Verzieh dich in die Küche, bevor ich herausfinde, wo du wohnst und dir... Dir persönlich Danke sage. Hör nicht auf die Hater. Du machst einen richtig guten Job. Und wir stehen alle hinter dir. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Welcome back. Our political editor, Pippa Kreera, is with us to look at the huge tension, it's fair to say, between the reality of the climate crisis and the government and arguably the Labour Party's positioning, a tension that we've seen play out very vividly over the last week. I wanted to ask you first, Pippa, about Zach Goldsmith's intervention or interventions, plural, because he's spoken to the sort of written word side of The Guardian and he's just done the, the, the podcast. Um, how do you think his interventions here will be received by number 10? Well, Let's not forget that it is only a matter of weeks that Zach Goldsmith resigned, accusing Rishi Sunak of being uninterested in the environment from his job um, as a as a minister, and immediately ended up in this row with Number Ten, who claimed that he'd actually quit after being told to apologise for undermining the parliamentary inquiry into Boris Johnson. So, you know, there's, there's already quite a lot of bad blood between the two of them. So, I think because of that. Number 10 will attempt to dismiss any criticism as potentially being, I don't know if they'll be as avert as this, but potentially being politically motivated. Certainly, they will be able to say that he is not a supporter of Rishi Sunak particularly. But the problem that they'll have is that whatever his political loyalties, and indeed his personal ones, Zach Goldsmith is, is has a very strong reputation as being somebody that genuinely, authentically cares about the environment and has made it his life's work to try and do his bit. So it's not as simple as saying he's a political opponent, let's ignore him. Zach Goldsmith inevitably will have people listen to him on the substance of it as well. And that's that's tricky for number 10. Let's talk about um, this very clear move away uh, from some of the government's green climate-focused policies and which of those particular policies uh, are under threat. Can we just run through those quickly? Now, Number 10 said on Monday that the government would, quote, continually examine and scrutinise, unquote, these measures. Sunak has talked about being pragmatic and proportionate, but we're talking on Wednesday. Already this morning, news has broken about Sunak moving away from a measure which would have compelled landlords to have more environmentally friendly properties, right? So things are happening. Um, where, as things stand, is the government's uh, plan to 
phase out new petrol and diesel cars by 2030? So I think that is the trickiest one because it is. It, there's been so many mixed messages. Rishi Sunak, when he went out earlier this week on his broadcast around, didn't commit to it explicitly. And yet his spokesman just a couple of hours later came out and said, no, we're sticking to it, it's government policy. Different ministers have said different things. So it feels at the moment that the that the, the ban on selling new petrol and diesel cars by 2030 is government policy for now. Michael Gove um, in the last couple of days has also come out and been much more, uh, stuck to it much more rigidly. Um, but like all of these things, the problem is, do the public believe them? Because the government is kind of wobbling on quite a few of these different, whether it's boilers, whether it's cars, whether it's low traffic neighbourhoods. And so even if they do recommit to it, because they've had so many other voices suggesting that actually they might not end up pursuing it after all, because it is politically contentious and we're coming up to an election, I think the, the danger is, is that the public can look at them and say, is this actually going to, you know, is this actually going to happen? Whatever they say. There's a clear sense of all of this being undermined in one way or another. The one big one which they which nobody is suggesting they're currently currently resiling from is the twenty fifty net zero emissions target. But we've had this we've had this before where politicians will say, Yes, we're absolutely committed, we're a world leader, we're committed to reducing emissions by twenty fifty, but actually uh we're going to we're going to back end the measures. It's too difficult to do now, it's too complicated to do now for whatever yeah, yeah. reason. But we will do it all, but it'll be later further down the line. The problem is, is that is that there's sort of a balance, there's a ledger here, and that if you don't do some things, then you have to do others in order to be able to meet the emissions targets. And while we're hearing all these suggestions of what the government won't do, we're hearing very little about what they're actually going to do to get that target. Yeah, and it's worse than that, isn't it? There's a sense of someone telling you they're coming round your house, and whenever you call them a taxi, they keep cancelling it. Well, again, that t- that taps into the sort of the trust issue, and actually, the early adopters in all of these things, so the first people to get electric vehicles, or the first people to spend the money on the heat pumps, or whatever the other measures might be, are less likely to do it if they think they're going to invest their money in it, only to find that it gets scrapped by the government. So it has a detrimental yes. effect in that in that regard as well. Let's talk about Rishi Sunak. As you mentioned a moment ago, Zach Goldsmith's chosen word for Rishi Sunak's attitude to the climate crisis is uninterested. What do you think his take is on climate matters, broadly speaking? I think he recognises that the political reality and international momentum is towards dealing with um, the climate crisis. I don't think there's any climate scepticism here, but I do think he has his other priorities that have manifested themselves in his focus on economic policy. And I think it's really interesting, particularly when you compare them with Labour, that the government seems to regard climate measures as being a cost rather than a benefit beyond obviously the long term saving the planet, whereas Labour are really pushing hard on climate measures being about the cost of living, that you need these measures in in order to be able to save on your energy bills longer term. And I think those, those, those two narratives, I kind of think, show where we are with this, is that actually it's quite difficult for politicians to make the case for some of these measures if they can't argue why they're needed. It's not just about they're being opposed, it's about they're being opposed for a reason. And it sounds a little bit like Labour's prepared to make that case, as things stand, where the Conservatives aren't. And that's all in my mind about the proximity to the general election, the fact that it's a year away, that they don't want to have to make those hard arguments. um, And it's much easier just to sort of cast a question mark over whether they're actually going to happen. I mean, there's a great big sort of disingenuous hole in a lot of Tory rhetoric in this idea that um, 
climate measures will cost people more, which is that the government's own ban on onshore wind, it is estimated, costs households in the UK £180 a year, right? So it's the government's approach to all this, which is costing people. Yeah, I mean, there are other conservative, I mean, like Smith, one of them, obviously, but there's people like Chris Skidmore, who produced a, a net zero review for the government, a Tory MP, and there are others in the party that do understand that. And actually, much of government policy at the moment, it nods to that and, and recognises that you have to invest in green technology and jobs and so on. What the, the difference is, and actually there's been this political consensus for some time because despite all his faults Boris Johnson uh, did at least push for towards the climate um, targets. Um, the, the difference now is not sort of the technocratic official one that you know the civil service is working towards it's is what the politicians are saying and we're not yet at the point with all of these policies where they press the button on them not happening but of course that's the next step and that's the thing we really need to look out for. Um, if anyone's wondering what the sound is behind Pippa there is drilling in the houses of the parliament. <laughs> it's recess they need crude... to they need to do the upgrade sometime. Yeah, it's not for crude oil I hasten to add. Um, let's talk about the Labour Party that you mentioned a moment ago. The Labour Party might have only lost Uxbridge and South Ryslip by, by four or five hundred votes of the Conservatives but it didn't take very long for a post-mortem to happen to blame them people's opposition to the expansion of London's ultra low emission zone to outer London. Keir Starmer has taken issue with Sadiq Khan about that. Sadiq Khan is said to be under pressure from Starmer. We don't know where all that's going. But the context for where the Labour Party is in the wake of the Uxbridge by-election is bigger than you, Les, is the sense that there are people around Keir Starmer and in the parliamentary Labour Party who are uneasy about an emphasis on climate action, who feel that the Labour Party's um, so-called green prosperity plan has been sort of sold in the, in the wrong way. We've already seen the $28 billion a year on a kind of quasi-Green New Deal that's been postponed. There's a lot of uncertainty and fragility around Labour's approach to climate, and that's part of this sort of fretful political moment. Do you agree with that? I think fragility is is the key word, it's the right word. Um, and in response, I think Labour probably will need to push back robustly to remind people that just because they have delayed the £28 billion green uh, investment fund, that doesn't mean they're not committed to it. They still fully intend to do it. I mean, that's what they say, but I'm not sure that's necessarily been communicated. I hear people saying it's been ditched entirely, which obviously isn't the case. And with things like uh, ULES, we saw a very immediate reaction after the Uxbridge by-election, where the finger of blame was being pointed at Sadiq Khan. And Keir Starmer said he'd asked him to reflect on the policy. And I think everybody was kind of thinking, oh, right, he's asking him to dump it entirely. But actually, in subsequent days, there's been a much more nuanced position. You know, they had conversations about what mitigations they could bring in, about whether there should be more money from the government, scrappage schemes and so on. And it's more about tweaking the scheme than actually ending it completely, even though Tory MPs are obviously spotting this as an opportunity to take seats in outer London. So I think, some, again, as ever with Labour at the moment, it feels like it's the communication that is the problem more than the policy itself. Right, let's leap somewhere else. This week, Pippa um, has seen even more developments, quite sizable developments um, in the ongoing saga, yawn-inducing, some would say, but very dominant in the news agenda of Nigel Farage and his coots and co-account and the management of NatWest Bank and all that. Can you give us a quick rundown of where we're at now? So when I went to bed on Tuesday night, uh, Alison Rose, the chief executive of NatWest, had apologised, identified herself as the as the leaker, suggested that she'd allowed herself to be misinterpreted by Simon Jack, the BBC's business editor, 
and um and that she thought that was going to be it and then i woke up on wednesday morning and she had resigned there'd been a overnight an emergency board meeting number 10 in the treasury had made it very clear they're very unhappy with the situation and it all felt like um quite a you know quite a heavy amount of political heft and intervention going on there uh which has made some people feel quite uncomfortable uh, and suggests it wasn't necessarily the proper procedures that were followed. Do you think Number 10 and the Treasury are weighing in because there's a matter of principle here about on what grounds people can have their banking services suspended on the face of it or because they're terrified of their own base and, and Conservative MPs, some Conservative MPs, and they want to be seen to do the right thing by Nigel Farage? I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think it's both people shouldn't have their bank accounts closed because of their political opinions. Also, that people shouldn't have their own personal financial details discussed at the various highest levels and given to journalists. And that applies whether it's Nigel Farage or you or me or anybody else. Um, but yes, of course, um, it does feel, it's hard to get away from feeling that uh, the Treasury and Number 10 are perhaps more exercised by this particular <laughs> chief executive intervening than they have been by chief executives of numerous firms, energy firms, yeah. P&O, yeah. uh, you know, bosses that don't necessarily follow uh, that follow bad practice or or even illegal practice when it comes to their workers, that whose companies have gone bust, leaving their customers millions of pounds out of pocket. Uh, we haven't heard them calling on those particular chief executives to go. And yet Alison Rose, in this instance, has been told on no uncertain terms that she has to quit. And it's hard to escape the feeling that, that there is a political element to all of that as well. And even Keir Starmer has joined in. Nat West got this one wrong, and that's why Alison Rose had to resign, he said on Wednesday, and asked if he felt sorry for Nigel Farage. Starmer said yes. He shouldn't have had his personal details revealed like that. It doesn't matter who you are. That's a general rule. Well, I think that's right. Um, but it's also more than that, isn't it? It's not just that it's the, the wrong course of action. Like I say, there's a political calculation being, being made here. And I think probably a strategic one in, in Starmer's case, that if he suggests that she shouldn't have gone, then this story rumbles on and on and on. And sometimes it's better just to draw a line under it. And I suspect that's what's happening here. Now maybe we can get back to talking about the fact that Europe is sweltering in the midst of impossible temperatures. There are yeah. typhoons and floods in China and the planet is in a terrible mess. Right, on that note, we will finish. Thank you for joining us, Pippa. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As I always say, if you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 